Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the path to eternal life. And that your son Jesus is the gate. He is the narrow way that leads to life and freedom in a broad, broad place. God, in singing that all we have is Christ, by no means are we saying what we have is insufficient. All the heavenly riches and spiritual riches that are in Christ are available to those who have confessed him. And God, we are the benefactors of his great work and ministry. We thank you that he's our shepherd. He remains our shepherd. He will be our shepherd in the future. And even as we look at your word, we pray for the direction of the Holy Spirit and for for you to enliven your word in a way that would uh, activate our lives, would change the way we think and the change that we op- the way we operate. Do what only you can do here this morning, we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Amen. That's right. I'm glad he's in the front row. That's great. That's going to be encouraging. <laughs> the decisions that you and I uh, make, uh, right, they're every day, and they reflect who we are and what we value and um, what we think, what matters to us. Our choices, even if we're not great public speakers, they speak with a real clarity, don't they? Jesus uses images in a sermon he's going to give in a little while here in the Gospel of Luke and give us images to explain this. So he says things like, A tree is known by its fruit, or out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. Or a disciple, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. And that's because actions reveal the person and words reveal the heart. I had both a parenting failure and victory in the same moment the other day when I said to my daughter, I'm just saying. To which she then quoted my own words back to me and said, no one ever just says anything, Dad. Right? It's because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. This is how life works. And Jesus, he's about to make a really big decision in the Gospel of Luke. He's going to select who his authorized messengers are going to be in the future. And we're just looking at this little section in Luke chapter 6, verses 12 through 16 this morning. If you can turn in your Bibles there, if you're not there already. It's just five verses, and three of the verses are a list of names. You think, why would we do that? Right? That seems like a kind of a small chunk. Well, it's because this choice speaks. It reveals a lot of what matters to God and what should matter to us and what it means to be a part of his mission. This choice reveals four things to us, and we're going to look at them one by one. We'll talk about implications as we go. Before we read our text, our first one actually comes from the environment that the decision is made in. That's a big part of what uh, what we actually can learn from a situation like this where we watch people make decisions. Turning right or left at in an intersection when you're exploring a city on vacation is, is a different kind of decision than when you're fleeing a dangerous situation when your life is at stake. Right? Right or left could be the difference of life or death. The context of a decision matters. And so first we're going to actually see from our context this, that Jesus... He boldly authorizes messengers amidst controversy and opposition. Let's remember where we're at in Luke. If if you remember from the very beginning, 
Messianic expectation, this, this arrival of a deliverer, of a rescuer, was really big. Uh, this Holy Spirit made sure to, to bring up different um, uh, scripture even that we saw, whether it's in song or whether it's in a poetic form of, of how Jesus, the Savior, was coming even as a baby. And so his birth was saturated with all these promises. Then the ministry of John comes along and prepares the way, saying, the Messiah is here. Jesus is doing miracles and he's teaching with authority and demons are calling him the Son of God and he's really stirring things up. And he's talking about himself in a way that distinguishes him from the others, from the rest. He intentionally rejects the tradition of the religious elites and carves out kind of a unique name for himself. If you remember chapter 5 and 6, he claims to be the long-awaited bridegroom of God's people. That he's the new wine and that his teaching is the new wineskins. That he calls the shots when it comes to the Sabbath because he's the Lord of the Sabbath. And he's literally making a name for himself and starting something new. Along the way, he's also recruiting apostles or disciples. And culturally, this was a little bit backwards. Normally, disciples would go to mentors and try to uh, appeal to them so that they would be accepted as a student. But Jesus is instigating these scenes through things like a miraculous catch of fish, which gets the attention of these fishermen. Or going to the tax booth of a collector named Levi, who then throws him a party. Jesus is initiating and actively recruiting. And as he's doing that, his recruitment efforts are controversial. Because it puts him near shady people. He chooses to be near, not distant from, the spiritually sick. And this is kind of raising eyebrows and concerns. He's getting a reputation. But in the act of choosing apostles, of authorized messengers, he's formalizing this approach. He's saying, parts of this motley crew are going to be my representatives. Which is far different than people just showing up in crowds and they're of a certain, you know, ilk. That's, that's one thing. But now he's appointing men directly and specifically to carry the torch of his ministry. And so as he's recruiting disciples, he's also scattering and angering his critics. If you look in chapter 6, verse 11, the verse right before our text, it says, But they were filled with fury and disgust with one another what they might do to Jesus. So when Jesus does this, it's like the culmination of the controversy regarding Jesus' disciples, whether it's picking wheat on the Sabbath or the kind of company he's keeping. And so you got to wonder, is this really, this kind of hostile environment, the best time to say, well, here's my team and here's, I'm going to put some structure to this thing so that we can move forward, right? Why not just kind of take it easy and let... Let the controversy die down and let the opposition kind of shrink away. Jesus is not intimidated. He is being empowered by the Holy Spirit. He is assured of the Father's plan. He is lamb and lion. And later he would even send his disciples out, right, as lambs amongst the wolves. Without earthly resources, but very much aware of the protection of the Father. He knows his father always watches. He never slumbers. He never sleeps. And so he boldly moves his mission forward, even in the midst of controversy and opposition. This is actually encouraging to us, those of us who need courage to be faithful to God in the midst of a a setting like that. 
It's comforting to know, too, that the church has endured all kinds of seasons, seasons of persecution, seasons of rest. Both of those things have their dangers. In seasons of persecution, obviously, fear can be a problem, or retracting or dumbing down the gospel, or being less specific about the gospel. In seasons of rest, there's a temptation to presume, to lean towards ease, to to spend religious freedom on self and tribe and instead of gospel advance. And so as we potentially enter a time when the gospel is less valued by society, the truths that matter most remain unchanged. They are still our place of refuge. Jesus Christ is still the unrivaled leader of his church. The church at large is indestructible and destined to advance even beyond the gates of hell. The Holy Spirit is still empowering a people to make disciples and to testify and live for the gospel so that the world might know. These things are still true and let that encourage you as we think about the first thing here this morning. That no matter what, Jesus is committed to doing the will of the Father. For the last three, let's go ahead and read our text. It says in verse 12 through 16, In these days he went out to the mountain to pray. And all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor." Notice next that Jesus chooses his apostles after submissive prayer to the Father. This is already an established pattern in the Gospel of Luke. We saw it in chapter 4 and also in chapter 5. If you look at verses 15 and 16 in chapter 5, it says, But now even more the report about him went abroad. Great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Luke goes out of his way to describe what this time of prayer was like, that he went up on a mountain, which kind of evokes some memories for us, right, of Mount Sinai or other times when God's people went to the mountain to to receive revelation or to be near to God. He says he prays all night. I don't know if you've ever been in a season like that where you've actually done that. You've, You've prayed continuously. You were not either able to sleep or you were so eager and so hungry for the will of God or, or you were racked with a decision you needed to make that you needed to pray with a, with a sense of desperation and a sense of dependency. Jesus was genuinely human and he needed sleep like anyone else did. And so this, this wasn't a typical thing. This kind of tips us off that whatever's coming is a big deal. You think, well, what's, what's, the big deal about choosing apostles. Well, these are going to be the people who are going to carry his teaching forward, internalize it and repeat it and document it and write it down and authenticate it. These are the guys who are going to see the the band coming with the, the lanterns and the flickering lights to come and arrest Jesus. These are the people who Satan would try to sift. These are the guys who would be beaten and and arrested and thrown in prison and their their lives would be forfeited even at a point for many of them. They would plant churches. 
They would make hard decisions and spread the gospel. And so this was no small matter. This was a big deal. And so he had to pray. It was time to pray. Pray for specifics. Now, in a small little passage like this affords us to ask this question. Why does Jesus, the divine Son of God, pray? It's interesting in the Gospel of Luke, he goes way out of his way to show the relationship between Jesus' obedience and power and ministry and his relationship to the Holy Spirit. If you remember, the Spirit announced Jesus' arrival, right? Several people kind of come on the scene to forecast his birth. Mary is overshadowed by the Holy Spirit in his conception. He would take the throne of his father David, of whom it's spoken in Isaiah 11. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. John the baptizer said he was, John the Baptist himself, right, was indwelt by the Holy Spirit from birth, and he announces that Jesus would be the baptizer of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is praying at his baptism. The Spirit descends on Jesus. Jesus is led by the Spirit into the wilderness. In chapter 4.14, he returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, where he preached at Nazareth, where guess what he preached about? Isaiah 61. And he says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. When Luke starts the book of Acts, after the resurrection of Jesus, he starts by saying this. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Even as the resurrected Christ, Jesus was depending on the Spirit to relay teaching. When Peter is summarizing the ministry of Jesus in Acts 10, 37 through 38, He says this, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. Sometimes when we think about the obedience of Jesus, we just think that he defaults to his deity. But here we see that that's that's not what we get out of this text. He is dependent on, He doesn't just rely on divine knowledge and pull out the file saying 12, the list of 12, and name the names. He spends all night in prayer. Why does Luke emphasize this? And many other times in Luke and Acts. Passages like this demonstrate that Jesus models for us what it means to be truly human. He certainly demonstrates his deity in the Gospels, right? I mean, he walks on the water. He knows what people are thinking. So it's not to say that he doesn't do that, but Luke wants us to see that Jesus in his humanity is relying on the power of the Holy Spirit in obedience to the Father. Jesus demonstrates what Spirit-filled submission looks like and how he goes about making this decision, and that's through earnest prayer. What's the implication of this for us? I want to read theologian Bruce Ware at length here because I think it's helpful. He says this, The most pressing application from this understanding of Jesus is that the life and obedience and faithfulness that Jesus lived can genuinely and rightly be set forward as an example of how we too should live. Precisely because the very resources Jesus used to live his obedient life are resources given also to all of us who trust and follow Him. Think of it. 
He relied on the word of God, and we too have the same divinely inspired word. He relied on prayer, and we too have full access to the throne of grace through the entrance that Jesus has established on our behalf. And importantly, he relied on the Spirit, who empowered him to do the good things he did and to carry out the supernatural works God called him to do. And we too now have that very same Spirit. Here, the words of Jesus in Acts 1-8 to his apostles, in light of this, he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And do you know what Luke says these same apostles did immediately after Jesus ascended to heaven? They went and he lists them by name in Acts 1 and says they went and devoted themselves to prayer. And this spirit submission of Jesus that he models for his apostles, we see in the book of Acts, right? They're deciding who's the next apostle because Judas betrays. And they pray. Thousands are added at Pentecost, and what do they do? They pray. Peter and John are arrested and released, and the church is threatened. What do they do? They pray. They appoint deacons. They install them in the church. What do they do? They pray. Saul is blinded on the way to Damascus. What does Ananias find him doing when when he meets him? He's praying and fasting. Peter's whole understanding of the Gentile inclusion happens in the context of prayer. Peter is imprisoned, but it says in Acts 12, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. In the midst of worshiping and fasting, the Spirit makes it clear that God is to set apart Barnabas and, and Paul for this, this ministry. It was through prayer. Paul and Silas were praying in jail and singing hymns when God frees them with an earthquake. I could go on and on. What's the point? We need to be people of prayer. This is what submission to the Spirit looks like. And Jesus is modeling for us in this beautiful scene up on the mountain. Even as the Son of God, He is demonstrating what it means to be obedient to the Father and submissive to the Spirit. The bridegroom has not returned. It is a time for prayer and for fasting, particularly in critical chapters of the life of the church. So when the search committee requests that we pray, we need to pray. Wisdom for the committee, they ask. Qualified applicants continue applying. Unity in our church during the process. A great suggestion that surfaced through uh, someone in our body who said maybe life groups should dedicate a small portion of each of their meetings to prayer. Perhaps you simply invite people over for dinner and you spend time praying for our church. The point is, we need to be in earnest prayer as a church. Submitted, desiring obedience, desiring His will most in prayer. Number three, Jesus chooses an unexpected and diverse group of apostles. It says in verse 13, And when the day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles. And then it lists them. Let's briefly clarify, what is an apostle? The apostles were disciples, of course, but there was kind of an added layer of authority because they were authorized messengers. They had a different kind of authority and responsibility. I recently made an online order uh, for an igniter from a third-party company that was cheap uh, online, because mine went out on my little smoker barbecue thing, that, that, and I'm diagnosing the problem, and sure enough, it didn't work. 
Okay? So I called the barbecue company and I said, hey, I can't figure this out. This part isn't working. And they said, well, where'd you buy the part from? Well, <laughs> I bought it from some random company online. I said, well, we, we can't authorize a, you know, a, a warranty off that because online knockoffs weren't trustworthy, right? They couldn't account for the quality of the item because they didn't produce it themselves. The apostles are kind of like gospel authenticators. You see them in the book of Acts kind of running around um, uh, verifying or, or shoring up or confirming or adding to uh, the teaching or the way that God is spreading his word and his gospel. They were the authorized carriers of Jesus' body of teaching, so much so that in Acts 2, right, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. This is because they, they had backstage access, you could say, for three years of Jesus' ministry. And they got explanations that the crowds didn't always get. And they saw him firsthand. They witnessed things themselves. This was a qualification for being an apostle, was to be an eyewitness. So apostles were authorized messengers. But note who he chooses. If you were in the crowd that day and you thought, okay, Jesus is going to kind of pick 12 people to carry his mission forward, who do you think he'd pick? Where would your mind start? You know, kind of, well, who knows the Bible the best? Who's, who has cultural influence at this point? And you'd maybe come up with a list of, of names. And it probably wouldn't look a lot like the list that Jesus gave. Many people probably thought of the religious scholars, right? There was an existing Jewish authority and leadership that was established. And so we also have to pay attention to who Jesus doesn't pick to be apostles. That's almost just as important in this setting. Now, this is not to say that these disciples are spiritual infants and totally ignorant of... They were devout Jews. They knew their Old Testament. It's not as if we should despise them, but, but they weren't really noteworthy. They wouldn't have made the list. They, wouldn't, they weren't movers and shakers. They're described later in the book of Acts as uneducated and common. And yet, Jesus' intense reliance on the Father and in the Holy Spirit makes it clear that these twelve are the twelve. There was no messing this up. These were divinely appointed men for the task. And if you want evidence that Jesus is starting something new, just kind of look at the guys he chose. Yeah, this is different. They were a diverse group. They were very different from one another. Simon Peter, right, the confident spokesman who puts his foot in his mouth a lot. Thomas, on the other hand, wrestled with doubt. Matthew was a tax collector and participated in the oppression of the Jewish people through the Roman state. And there in the same group is Simon, who has zealot sympathies, who hated Rome's rule of the Jews and actively opposed it. It would have been really interesting to hear the interactions between those two men as they traveled around for three years together in a very intense situation. There were locals like James and John and Peter and Andrew, and then there was Judas Iscariot, who is likely referred to as coming from an area of Judea, probably a non-Galilean person. Some were martyred quickly, James, and some lived a long time. I mean, this was a really diverse group with very different types of backgrounds and income levels and political beliefs and hometowns and personalities and gifts and leanings. I mean, it was a smattering across the board. And despite these differences, they did have something in common, though, right? Which was 
the call of their master. Their obedience to Messiah. Though they were different, because they were all being formed and shaped into his likeness, they actually started becoming like him and therefore united. An implication for this is that we learn something about how God operates in Jesus' unexpected selection of these apostles. Granted, the office of apostle is past, but God, we see in the New Testament, kind of recruits in the same kind of way as he calls disciples to follow him. He says in 1 Corinthians 1, for example, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what's foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. This is God's way. And if you think this group is diverse, just wait for a generation. And then another one after that. And pretty this movement explodes. And there are untold millions of people folding into the church of Christ. And it's as diverse as it ever is, right? Before. Those differences are widening as the gospel goes out. And yet this movement remains intact. And you think, how? How could people from such different backgrounds, speaking different languages, earning different amounts, believing different things, stay committed to one another and exercise the kind of New Testament love that was spectacular to those who watched it? Well, this group had one great unifying center, and that was the need for Christ himself and the glory of Christ himself. They all, in one way or another, reflected Simon Peter's request, oddly enough, to depart from me, for I am a sinful man, or I am a sinful woman. This is how we share a united understanding of who Christ is, is through our understanding of our sin. It's unbelievable that we know and love Jesus. It's really crazy that we know who God is and what he's doing and that we're a part of that. If you step back and really think about it. And his invitation to follow is just as startling and undeserved and hard to explain as it was at the base of that mountain. Imagine being one of the twelve. Thinking, what in the world is God going to do with me? But our mighty Messiah, he still beckons the spiritually sick and his glory is still weighty enough to unify all kinds of every tribe and nation and tongue. People who have different languages spoken at home and different political convictions, he is still unifying people because of the unexpected and surprising grace of God that we find in the gospel. And so here we sit as that spectrum, as that diversity the challenge for us is to be to continually fight for the unity that is ours in Christ despite our diversity. Will we take the bait of favoring political alliances over our gospel alliance in an election year? Will we allow this time of transition will we refocus and remember that the head of our church, the Lord Jesus, and the Great Commission are the same. This is our unity. This is what we have. There are good days ahead for Glenwood because the gospel is true and the Spirit is in our midst and the Word is inspired. And we have a unified mission that is worth advancing. 
which is my final point from our text. Jesus chooses people for the purpose of advancing and multiplying his ministry. You might have came in this morning and think, what are we doing with these five verses? But this is a really big deal, you guys. This is a pivot. This is a new thing. This is a a new chapter in God's salvation plan and story. It's not a coincidence that he chose 12. Though Jesus is going to distinguish himself from the, the layers of Pharisaic teaching that they've added to the law, this is definitely a continuation of the work of God. And Luke makes that really clear to us. This is not a new story. It's, an, it's a new chapter in a very long story that's had its roots in Abraham and Genesis. Right? The plan of God to save Israel and the nations through Messiah. We know that Jesus chose 12 apostles to underscore this continuation and this reality. Because later on in Luke, after the disciples, they have this great argument about who the greatest is, which is the royal waste of time. Jesus says to them this in Luke 22. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Later on, Paul, when he's on trial, refers to the hope of the twelve tribes of Israel that's continuing on through Messiah. The New Jerusalem in Revelation 21 has twelve gates with the name of the twelve tribes on them, But the names of the twelve apostles are on the foundation of the walls themselves. God is starting a new chapter in the selection of these apostles. And it would multiply the ministry through their preaching and planting of churches and the documentation of the New Testament itself. So this is Jesus' plan. But let's stop and just ask maybe a more fundamental question. This is so, you probably learned this in Sunday school. You probably sang the song with all the twelve names and the whole deal. But let's just stop And ask this, why is there a list at all? Like, why why would the divine Son of God, the Messiah, who can bring about the the new heavens and the new earth and the restoration of, why is he forming a team at all? It's kind of strange when you think about it. And it's not that these twelve are particularly unsuitable people, though they clearly weren't, you know, the expected ones. But it's, it's not like Moses, where he's like overloaded with work and can't handle the workload and needs to, you know, distribute the leadership. We're talking about God. Why does he pick people at all? Well, this chapter in God's story not only includes multiplication; it includes subtraction. Because it wouldn't be long before the bridegroom would leave. He's not immediately going to take his bride. And his disciples, including us, would need to wait for him for a a long, long time. One of the curious choices that Jesus makes in terms of apostles is the last name on the list. Judas Iscariot. This seems odd, probably, and a strange choice given Judas' betrayal that Luke notes even is still coming. But Judas was chosen for the same reason that the others were chosen, to advance the mission of God. See, the mission of Jesus was to take on human flesh and become a sacrifice 
that could be exchanged for all those of the human race who admit to their spiritual sickness. And Judas furthered that mission through his treachery and was tolerated and trained for three years before the cross would come. But this cross and this resurrection would make Jesus' ongoing recruitment efforts, which include us, full of hope. His death would mean that his call to life and mission through the gospel are simultaneous and sincere. Without his cross and resurrection, we would not be included in his mission. We would be condemned in our sin and remain enemies of God. His return would not be our desire. It would be our demise. But instead, because of the gospel, God has called us to follow him as disciples who make disciples. The call of the gospel is a call to ministry. They are the same. And so we become messengers of this good news that has changed us. And this is why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. Why does Jesus choose people at all? First, because he had planned a physical, his physical removal from the earth. He would multiply his disciples by being powerfully present with them and giving them the Holy Spirit to make more. He multiplied ministry because he's patient, not wishing that any would perish, but that the gospel would get to all the nations. He multiplied his ministry to demonstrate his power. Why else would God use people like us to advance his mission? other than to show how capable and wise and and able He is. And we get a front row seat as we do ministry and as we serve in His kingdom. We actually see His supernatural work occur. Students who are hungry for God's Word and the Gospel and just can't get enough. The person who figures out for the first time they've been around the church for a long time, but they've never known what the gospel actually is. People who take a risk and start serving and, and, just, and find that God is able to supply through his power to use people in ministry. This is an incredible front row seat that we have to God's power. And that's all because he decided to multiply his ministry. If you are in Christ, you are a participant in the multiplying ministry of Jesus. You are a follower and a messenger. You may be a mother or an accountant or a son or a citizen, but you are first and foremost a disciple. And too often we view Christian life as merely that of receiving. And we have received. We've received an eternal inheritance. We've received the Holy Spirit. We've received forgiveness of the family of God. We've received a lot of things. But these things have been given to us to be given away. We've received to give. We've been commissioned and equipped and called to a multiplying ministry. And so are you a part of the multiplication of God's people on the earth? We can learn a lot just by this little section and seeing Jesus make this decision 
And so I guess my question is, how has it challenged you this morning? Is it Jesus's courage to move forward in spite of opposition? Maybe you feel paralyzed by conflict or cultural pressures all around, but you're encouraged to see Jesus' insistence to do the will of the Father. Is it the earnest prayer of a spirit-filled person submitting in obedience? Maybe obedience has felt so out of reach to you and you didn't realize that Jesus actually utilized the things that you have access to to obey the Father. Is it the diverse and unexpected group that Jesus chose? Perhaps you wish the body of Christ were a bit more like you. But maybe this morning you see that our diversity is a reflection of the unifying power of Christ himself. And that those little irritants that inevitably come up in life as the family of God are actually reminders of the gravitational pull of the power of the gospel. Maybe it's realizing that you play a role in the multiplying ministry of Jesus. That you're a child, but you're also an ambassador. And this Jesus has decided the ministry strategy, and we can't undo that. This is what it is. So let's embrace that reality as disciple makers. Maybe you're young in the faith and you need to find someone that you can follow and learn from. And while yourself looking for someone who's newer to the faith, who you can encourage. Maybe if you're hungry to grow, just make that known to other people. Ask God you to, to lead you in that. It can be in, a, in an unofficial capacity. You don't have to join something formally to do that. You can just... Grab two or three people and say, let's learn through this book of the Bible. Let's jump in with this topic of discipleship. The way that Jesus makes this decision matters to us. It reflects a lot about who he is and what he cares about and what our mission is too. So my question to you is, how will it matter to you to watch Jesus make this decision? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these parts in Scripture. For this new chapter that you are beginning. That even from the beginning of choosing the apostles, you knew your mission. You recruited Judas Iscariot and Simon Peter. and You knew that it would be your presence and your power that would use these 12 men and multiplied by hundreds of times over to share this good, incredibly good news of being able to follow the God that we've offended through our sin because of the sacrifice and the victorious resurrection of your Son. God, make that matter. Make this decision and how Jesus makes it matter to our hearts this morning to prayerfully pursue your will both for ourselves and our church. God, we've always known that we need you, but we, we know that in a different way right now. And we're thankful for that. So would you use that sense of dependence and that sense of need to unite us and focus us and help us to, to pursue you most. Help us to encourage one another to that end and, and to invite you and to, to lead us in the process of, of making more disciples and being your church, regardless of the season that we're in. We thank you that you rule and reign and that you're with us. It makes all the difference.
In Jesus' name, amen.